Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm okay. Um, why don't I just dive right in? No small talk? No nonsense? Uh, sure. We can start. Right. Where are you, by the way? This is small talk, but it's also it's relevant because I'm still doing recording. Where am I? I'm home. I'm, uh, where do I live? You mean Jersey City, New Jersey? Okay, so you're no longer you're no longer touring touring the Eastern Front. <laughs> uh, no, I was abroad in Europe for about two months. Um, so I was in Poland and then uh, England for about a month, uh, mostly because my girlfriend lives there, but I also went to France for a bit during the election and was in Belgium where I tried and failed to get into the extraordinary NATO summit, etc. But yeah, I've been, I've been home in New Jersey for about two weeks. They kept you out of NATO summit? Did they let journalists in, but not you? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, basically denied admittance. I submitted my application through Unheard for credentials, uh-huh. Um, and, you know, got an initial email at least acknowledging receipt of my um, application. And uh, hold on a second. I put the room initially on private, I thought, just so we could have our small talk, but maybe it's public. Is it, How do you check? Why aren't the settings coming up for me? I'm uh, making it public. Let's maybe it is public. Well, it is public. No, there's people here. I know, but... So I think there's some kind of glitch where if you make it private, certain people can still come in or something. You don't you talk do about it. the setting where it lets you choose between private or public room. Yeah, I don't. Well, I started this room. I, I, I like I think we logged in like simultaneously, so I might have been the one who did it live. So maybe you didn't get a chance to. Huh. Okay. So it's yeah, but usually there's an option to. To switch back and forth between public and private. Okay, so maybe it's maybe it's public and okay, first forget it. I doubt you. Um, you would be able to switch. You'd have to kick people out and then they get back in. Seems like it doesn't. Oh, edit room. Have you tried that? I can't. Oh, you know what? I can't edit the room yeah, yeah, because you, you started it. You started. Okay. okay, there you go. Yeah. So I have a thing. I can push a button and make it private if you want. No, no, no. It doesn't need to be private. It's fine if it's public. I just wanted to make sure that it was public. Okay, yeah. So, uh, because you technically started this room, I don't have the uh, that option as I usually do to edit the room. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah. In terms of my whereabouts, I'm in. Um, like I said, I'm in New Jersey. <laughs> uh, had a big European tour. I mean, a lot of people were just offended by the very notion of me being in Poland for some reason, um, because I had no rights to go and try to observe the hub of the U.S. proxy war and the southeast of poland and um people are also people also get offended when i look at when i observe ukraine flags in incongruous settings as we discussed last time <laughs> oh by the way i did actually a, call, a solo call in last night it was the guy maybe he'll be here there was a guy who was saying that he lives in gary indiana uh-huh. and he went to just the local gas station like a rest yeah. stop and at the gas station, when you're checking out and swiping your credit card to pay at the little uh, kiosk. Oh, it says a dollar for Ukraine. Yeah, I, I had that yeah. at the grocery store here. Yeah, I posted a picture of that. Like, you know, a dollar yeah. from like hungry children. Yeah, it's the, it must be the vendors. I don't think the gas station guy sets it up himself. I think whoever, yeah. whoever's running the vendors is sending that everywhere. Well, but I mean, if 
you're getting if, if this option is now available available at a certain maybe chain of gas stations, even if it's the just the the payment processing vendor doing it, wouldn't that have to be approved by the gas station or no? I mean, I don't know exactly. How I mean, the gas. I, I imagine the gas station doesn't have a strong opinion about which you know charities. <laughs> Yeah, get this Ukraine crap out of here. Maybe some of them do, but I, I don't know. I don't know if uh, a lot of them would. Uh, do and you in live Poland? in you live in LA, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you uh, do you um, did people in Poland know who you? So actually, finish the finish the uh, NATO story. So you submitted your credential with, with unheard, and then what happened? Oh, I, I've told the story. This was the um, it was the extraordinary NATO summit in March. Um. It was the day, a day or two before Biden went to Warsaw to do that now, I guess, infamous speech where at the climax he called for regime change. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, prior to that, there was an extra, quote-unquote extraordinary NATO summit convened in, in Brussels. And uh, it was announced when I was still in Poland. And so I went through the standard process of applying through this NATO press accreditation portal for a for admission and uh, submit a letter that unheard gave me just to author because you need like a letter signed by an editor on you know official letterhead or something so I got it <laughs> because I had to I hadn't written for unheard in actually a little while because I had been quasi exclusive with Substack for about a year but prior to that I did write for them frequently and they agreed to just you know draft up a letter um, for me and I sent it and then you know sent my passport information and whatever and so then I show up and um, I had to go to the Belgian Ministry of Defense, which I've joked is a thing that probably doesn't need to exist uh-huh. um, because actually the uh, original NATO headquarters was housed in what had been the Belgian Ministry of Defense building. Um, but then they opened up in 2017 a gleaming brand new NATO headquarters that's, you know, really elaborate, shiny uh, architecture. And it's this giant campus. I mean, it's a big uh, boondoggle uh, in terms of this just uh, new headquarters that was opened relatively recently. But anyway, to the, the press accreditation center was in this uh, sort of more drab uh, Belgian Ministry of Defense building. And I walked in and, because I hadn't been sure that I was going to be able to get in um, hmm. because um, you know, sometimes you really just have to show up in person and kind of wrangle at hmm. events like this in order to, to get in. And so that's what I figured I would do. Um, and I uh, spoke to one of the press people and it was – when I say press people, it was like a guy in, a full, in full military fatigues. Wow. Um, and he gave my name and said I had submitted my application and whatnot. And he gets on the phone and calls his unnamed superior because you can't get in touch with any specific individuals when you're going about this press accreditation process. It's just this uh, generic NATO account, email account that you can only have access to. Um, but anyway, the guy on the scene said, oh, yeah, no, we could probably get you in. Don't, don't worry about it. I mean, this happens all the time. And uh, so the guy gets on the phone right in front of me, you know, reads out my name, reads out other details about my application. Mm-hmm. And then the nameless person on the phone that, that he, on the, he's on the phone with uh, sends back the message that I'm not to be granted admission. And they say, OK, you must leave the premises right away. Huh. So um, does the guy does the guy 
does it uh is there a delay does he know who you are when like he's like oh mike tracy is it like automatic or does he like go google something and then like no i don't think he i don't the guy who i was speaking to in person didn't know who i was but i think once they gave the superior on the phone my information then they ascertained who i was Uh um and i can't say for sure that i was rejected on the grounds of you know, having a political view or something that is perceived as antagonistic. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if that had something to do with it. I mean, they, they, I think the, the, the official justification was that there just simply wasn't enough room. So they opened up this brand new, you know, I forget how many square foot, but lots of square foot uh, headquarters. Um, you know, it's on this sprawling campus, but apparently they just didn't have enough physical space. Uh, to accommodate one more person. So anyway, uh, I, I actually also just applied to go to the next NATO summit, which is one of you know their annual summit in um, June in Madrid, uh-huh. when um, you know they're going to be officially considering. I, th- I think the applications of uh, Finland and Sweden to join. So, um, so you're doing that one early. So this one they can't tell you there's no more room because you're you're on top of it. I, I presume. Yeah. Uh, I also don't believe that there was no room. Uh, I think that they just have maybe an unspoken policy where they only really let in people with you know outlets that are the most you know officially sanctioned, like you know BBC or NBC or some of these more just mainline media outlets. Um, and maybe it also had something to do with my own personal background that they looked into and thought that I wasn't fit to attend. No, that's, I'm not that's sure. yeah, that wouldn't be surprising. That wouldn't be surprising at all. When you got to Poland, you said people were mad at you. Just Americans on Twitter, or did people in Poland know? Were? No, people in Poland were fine. People in Poland were friendly and nice, and um, everyone I spoke to was perfectly amiable. Uh, it was, you know, it was of course just the online reaction because number one, people don't like me in particular. And so anything I do, they're going to have an aggressively negative reaction to. And uh, also, that you know, it was some combination of it really didn't make sense what I was being criticized for. It was either that, you know, why is this a story? Of course, they're sending U.S. military to fortify these new, defa- new uh, kind of ad hoc bases around Poland. There's uh, nothing new about this. You're just an idiot. And number, uh, or on the other hand, I was endangering uh, national security. Right. By showing up to these bases and talking to people, um, yeah. So the criticism was some combination of the two. But of course, I didn't just look at the American military presence there. I talked to you know displaced Ukrainians and just got a whole a feel of what the view was. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting. I uh, on one day, I think I also meant, I mentioned this on a call back when I was there or thereabouts. But this might you might find this interesting. Uh, there was one day where I met back to back with a um, left-wing activist, uh, activist who had been um, you know, active in this left-wing party that had formed in 2015 and then left the party uh, after the invasion happened because he didn't agree with their extremely belligerent take on it. Um, and then I also met with a member of parliament in Poland who's uh, right wing. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of these people, when I asked them to just describe what the prevailing attitude is in Poland toward 
the war, they both use the exact same word. So this is a you know, hardcore left-wing guy and hardcore right-wing guy. Unbeknownst wow. to them, they both use the exact same word to describe the political atmosphere in Poland. And the word they used was just madness. <laughs> Do you know, you know, Poland, you're, if you're, people have long enough memories to remember, just like, you know, a few months ago before this thing started, every news piece of news coming out of Poland was about abortion, was about a culture war, was about the uh, democracy was being overthrown by this uh, right wing uh, Christian fundamentalist uh, political party. Yeah, it's called um, the Law and, Ju- Law and Justice Party. They actually prohibited abortion in 2020. Yeah, yeah, right. I remember. Yeah, I remember. And there was these big protests, and yeah, this was a big deal in the media. And they supposedly, like, you know, the judiciary, they corrupted the judiciary, which involved just like having the politicians appoint the judge instead of like having the judges appoint themselves, which is like, you know, <laughs> the judges appointing themselves. You know, that doesn't sound like much of a democracy uh, to me. Uh, but um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, like, you know, Poland is like, I guess, not a democracy, but, you know, that stuff just gets forgotten. Is, is the culture where. I, you don't have experience with Poland. I wonder how this culture war stuff, like how much it's noticeable to like, you know, the average Pole or it's just American uh, media projecting their own obsessions onto that country. Um, well, I mean, I, I did speak to a couple of Polish people who would be the equivalent of, you know, liberals or Democrats, roughly speaking, in the U.S., meaning that they despise the incumbent government uh, largely because they – dislike the social conservatism um like one of the first pe- one of the first people i met in poland was this uh, sort of younger woman college age who you know her number one grievance about the government is that it's too religious and conservative and that has to do with abortion and lgbt stuff and so on so i mean it's there's a cognizance of it um yeah. i can't i can't i know i can't extrapolate that much about how uh, dominant the issue is, but you know, I think it's definitely been probably overtaken recently, given the now uh, centrality of foreign policy. Another story that I've told is that um, I met this couple, in, this older, you know, middle-aged couple in Poland who are, you know, ardently opposed to the uh, national government, um, and um, you know, they were even accusing them of. They they used an argument that uh, against the incumbent national government that you would probably more associate with right wing conservatives in the U.S., which is that they're mm. basically paying off. The idea is that because they have like sort of a universal welfare payment that they instituted, mm. that they're just paying off the citizenry uh, and disincentivizing them from working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if there's like a coherent economic logic behind why this particular couple had this criticism of the government. I think it probably stems from them just not liking the social or cultural agenda, and then that taints everything else that the government does in their eyes. Anyway, but the, the, it's sort of funny because when it, the conversation would shift to Ukraine or shift to what Poland ought to be doing vis-a-vis Ukraine, they were extremely vehement uh, in basically how aggressive they wanted the response to be. They call, They said, and these are basically, you know, the liberals in, in Poland, they're like, you know, would have been a Nancy Pelosi types or something here. Mm. Um, they, were, they were saying that they wanted the U.S. to send in SEAL Team 6 to assassinate <laughs> Putin. Um, yeah, the Polish, the Polish anti-Russian thing is interesting. I mean, you, it makes sense. I mean, the, the history makes sense. 
a lot of other Eastern European countries seem to have gotten over that history, but I understand why Poland uh, perhaps wouldn't. I was I was a substitute teacher like for a little while in like my twenties, and uh, yeah, I remember we had all these Polish kids I was teaching, and I asked them, uh, remember, do you remember when it was like ten, fifteen years ago, the uh, like the Polish president or or somebody, and like his brother died. Uh, there was like these bunch of people died, and I just well, yeah, was, there was a giant it. plane crash in 2010 yeah, where yeah. almost you know the the yeah the president of Poland died. It was like it was the president of Poland and like half of the cabinet, <laughs> yeah, the equivalent of the cabinet, and you know uh, senior military officials. It was. Uh, Bizarre. I mean, there are still actually the, the the brother of the president who died subsequently took over the party, uh-huh. um, and you know that his bro- the uh, there were twin brothers, I think. Um, so the brother who survived took yeah. over the party that his brother, the president, had ran, and even to this day, promotes the theory that the plane crash that was this giant catastrophe was actually. Um, Facilitated by Russia because the plane crashed yeah. in Russia. Um, the plane was on its way to some sort, some event in, in Russia. And that's where it crashed. So it's still sort of a, an issue that comes up. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Those kids, like they were like 10 years old. They were 10 year old like kids from Poland and in Chicago. And they're like, oh, yeah, it was the Russians. And I'm like, wait, it's the Russians. That was the first time actually I ever heard that. Uh, so, yeah, there's some there's a deep anti-Russian feelings. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. Have you ever looked into it? Have you ever looked if there's any actual evidence? Uh, I've looked into it, you know, uh, in a cursory way. You know, it's sort of hard to dig into the nitty gritty of it because I can't, you know, read Polish and I wouldn't be able to go to all the way into the wormhole um, or down the rabbit hole, rather. Uh, I guess it's a wormhole and a rabbit hole combined. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a. I, I just know that the theory is out there. I think the um, the brother who continues to espouse the theory. Hold on, I'm just gonna look it up real quick because uh, it is pretty interesting. Um, the, the, the 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 brother who continues to espouse the theory. Um, he uh, he's. I'm trying to figure out what the. My uh, on-the-fly Wikipedia skills aren't the great. Aren't the, yeah. the greatest, well, I got but, uh, the, MIK, the MAK report found that the immediate cause of the accident was the failure of the crew to make a timely decision to proceed to alternative airport, despite being warned multiple times because of the poor weather conditions at Smolensk. Okay, so it sounds like there's just bad weather, and it seems like they were warned. I don't know how Russia would would crash up like if it blows up in the sky. Like okay, right? If it crashes in bad weather. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so so like so it's interesting because the brother, his name is the brother who survived, Jaroslaw Kaczynski, he's still the head of the Law and Justice Party, which is the governing party. Yeah. Um, so he's he got to Pol- because it's a Polish report too, and the Polish report also says it's an accident. So this guy's got to believe that the Polish government is in on it, along with the Russians. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so uh, uh, there's also a so, thing, so the left wing uh, candidate died too. So his opponent in the next election, so the president and his opponent both died. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's incredible. The president of the National Bank. Wow, what a story. Yeah, and you know, occasionally if you read like the National Review or you kind of follow what people in that crowd are, maybe the the ones who sort of lean in this more so called national conservative direction. Um, 
maybe slightly more anti-interventionist in their foreign policy views, they they would be all into Poland. I mean, it was the it was Hungary before Hungary became a thing, because they liked the, you know the social conservatism, I guess, and they liked no. But Poland is um, the the difference is Hungary is like it's got you know two thirds in parliament. Uh, the, the the right wins. Poland is very divided. I mean, the you know the conservatives win the elections by like fifty point one percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it, that's that's all gone. You know the next time the election goes the other way. Well, yeah, but I was just going to say that, you know, to the extent that the people who I'm vaguely referring to in that crowd were fans of Poland and also anti-interventionists, they are uh, or, you know, don't buy into the consensus view of Russia. Um, they they'd have to be fairly disappointed by the um, reaction of Poland to the Ukraine war, because, I mean, they've been at the tip of the spear in trying to demand greater and greater intervention. And I don't. I think it, did I mention this to you last week on the show? I'm not, I don't. Rec- I don't remember. But um, there was uh, uh, the po- the prime minister of Poland last week did an op-ed in the Telegraph where he said, "quote Putin is neither Hitler nor Stalin. He is more dangerous <laughs> and because Putin has quote infected the internet with millions of instances of fake news." That's the pr- presiding prime minister of Poland, who's like you know in the conservative. He's in the Law and uh, Justice Party. Uh-huh. So uh, the, the uh, it doesn't really match up with the sort of dreams of the more American national conservative Well, Ukraine crowd. is also – I mean Ukraine is an interesting country too because from this perspective because it's in a lot of, way, a lot of ways a very conservative country too. The, the trajectory of Ukraine though seems to be towards a more leftist uh, woke direction. Um, and but you know still like there's truth to the nazi thing and so it's like it's got like you know the the biggest nazis in the world and the biggest like trans activists in the world uh in its corner you know after this is all all over uh they're gonna have to they're gonna have to fight it out <laughs> so yeah yeah it's so hard for american conservatives now to, to sort of know what to make of ukraine yeah so we'll, we'll get back into ukraine in a moment but i kind of i wanted to ask you something just about electoral politics here with these uh, primaries that have been underway, particularly the Republican primaries, because, you know, the number one thing that people are uh, feverishly trying to uh, discern is whether these primaries reflect Trump's continued dominance over the Republican Party, because obviously he's doing something that's very unusual, at least in terms of recent history for a former president to do, which is, you know, actively intervening in some of these primary races uh you know issuing endorsements and such and um you know the most recent one this week this week was in uh pennsylvania at least the most recent high profile one was in uh pennsylvania with uh in the senate race with dr oz versus this guy mccormick funnily enough uh both dr oz and the guy and mccormick are both actually new jersey residents Uh um (laughs) you know the the mccormick is just this hedge fund guy you know and uh oz is guy who uh is also extremely rich because oprah christened him with a uh, syndicated talk show. I mean, if you can ever get a syndicated talk show or a syndicated show of any kind, this is the Howard Stern made all his money through the radio. Uh, that that's uh, just an incredible amount of money. Um, mm-hmm. You know, judge Judy is like one of the richest <laughs> women in the United States because of the, the uh, long-term success of her own syndicated show that she owns. Um, and, you know, so Dr. Oz has that. And, uh, you know, he lives in Bergen County, New Jersey, and then registered in 2020 at his in-laws house in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Um, and then he's running for the Senate. But anyway, so Trump endorses Oz, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you had this whole thing where Sean Hannity was dispatched 
in the week prior to the election to sort of take down this other candidate, Kathy Barnett, who's this you know, black woman who's a Republican and who, uh, you know, had this searing uh, narrative about how she, you know, uh, her, her mother was it that you know, her mother was raped or something? And she, yeah, her she mother wasn't a baby. Her dad was 22, I think, is the story. And so it was a statutory rape. And she tells the story that her mom didn't have an abortion. And so that's like, you know, that's her big issue. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, you know, Trump endorses Dr. Oz. And it just got me to thinking how stupid it is. The amount of energy that's expended on trying to decipher like some coherent ideological through line to who Trump is endorsing and, you know, uh, who he's saying is going to carry on the legacy of making America great again, again. Um, yeah, because on the one hand, you know, okay, so he backed J.D. Vance, fine. Uh, but then, I mean, you have uh, Dr. Oz, and it's just like, okay, so what is the connection there? It seems like it's just whoever Trump seems to well, there's, there's personally like. Trump yeah. loves celebrities. He loves people out of central casting. J.D. Vance was famous uh, before he became uh, came into politics. He had a best-selling book. He had a Netflix movie uh, made about his life, uh, Dr. Oz. You know, Trump's endorsement of Dr. Oz itself. It's like, you know, a few sentences. One of those, like, he had a very successful show. you got to love Trump. He doesn't really hide you know what it, what he cares about so i think that's i think that's it it's like okay there's two there's the, the vote was test as trump won the election uh in 2022 2020 and good on tv whoever has the right look i think i think that's the pattern i i don't think people are i don't think anyone you know i i, I would be surprised if anyone who has an iq above room temperature uh is looking for an ideology you know throughout these different endorsements but that seems to be what the the thrust of the media coverage is when they're talking about Trump's kind of current political activity, right? They're, they're saying that he's trying to consolidate this sort of ideological faction within well, the Republican Party. He's trying to consolidate pro, pro Trump people, right? Which is different from him. trying to consolidate an ideological faction. It actually kind of undermines the idea that MAGA is some kind of, you know, uh, again, coherent political force. Um, that maybe, you know, I, I don't know how people define it anymore. They just think of maybe it's like more right wing than Mitt Romney or something. I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure. The thing is, you know, it reminded me when I was looking into this that uh, Trump gave a full-throated endorsement to Mitch McConnell in 2020 where he said, quote, um, there's nobody tougher, there's nobody smarter. I think nobody's done a better job ever. Mitch McConnell has helped us make America great again. And now we're yeah. supposedly told that, you know, McConnell and Trump are these ardent ideological foes. Well, okay, so what? There were a, a giant ideological gulf opened up between them uh, since 2020? Well, so yeah, uh, since no, 2000. it's, 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 no, I mean, I, maybe, maybe this is sort of like a normie liberal point to make, but I mean, it's pretty, cl- I don't know what explanation holds water other than Trump really does just dole out these endorsements on the basis of who he kind of just, intuitively likes the most and also who he, th- he thinks is going to be most loyal to him. Um, well, how is he different from any other? I mean, every other politician, their endorsements are a combination of ideology plus loyalty plus who can help them. Right. I mean, I don't think that's unusual um, for how people go about endorsing people uh, with him. The ideology is turned down you know, a bit and then the uh, personal loyalty stuff is turned up. Um, but I don't think anyone's surprised. Look, I don't think anyone is expected from Trump the man. Like, people will debate whether MAGA is a consistent movement, but, like, Trump the man. So Kathy Barnett is interesting because she went on, like, Steve Bannon, and she would say stuff like, 
you know, Trump came to us because of our values. We didn't move towards him, which I think is wrong. I think people, I think Trump is actually the force here. Uh, but there were like Bannonites and other people. Uh, this Tea Party woman, uh, Amy uh, Kramer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if that, yeah. So there, there was people who were like trying to be more MAGA than MAGA um, and more MAGA than Trump. Um, who like Kathy Barnett. So there is something there. I mean, the Dr. Oz thing actually was, there There was a lot of backlash to that. I mean, because he, you know, he like had show, I guess the thing, his, I don't know what his sins were, but, you know, he was basically a liberal when he was on TV. I guess he had like trans children on, right, and then like supported their transition. And this was the big thing. I think they were going crazy. I'm sure he wouldn't support that today. Plus he's Muslim, which is like funny that Trump is like, you know, the, like, so some people in like Maggie He served in the Turkish that. military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny that Trump is the tolerant one, uh, well, I mean, the, Trump the, was pretty much party. a social liberal as well, not long before he sought office. So, I mean, how could I don't think that could really be a disqualifier anymore? Yeah, um, I know. I, yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of these people are factions. I, I know it's like these people, like what they do is often they will get paid from one campaign or another. So, like these influencers, right? Somebody will, uh, you know, somebody will be paying them some kind of super pack or something, and they'll basically be for sale. And often there won't be. I'm not saying this is what's happening in any particular case we've been talking about, but like sometimes when you see like some influencer and you can't really, they're just right wing and you can't tell like exactly what their ideology is and like why they're supporting this person instead of that person. Often it's just you know it's just it's just a it's just a grift. I mean that's what a lot of the stuff is. Yeah, and also, you know, a lot of the, at least a portion of the endorsements that Trump has given out are trying to basically run out of town the handful of Republicans who voted to impeach him um, right. or to convict him. And I'm sorry, but there's just not a whole lot of ideological content there. I mean, it really is just more personal retribution. And, and I know, you know, some Trump, maybe there are some Trump supporters listening or something who think that this is just, again, a uh, kind of knee jerk liberal normie MSNBC point to make. But I, I don't see any other logic behind the, at least those endorsements other than just retribution and cultivation of more and more loyal, uh, uh, you know, uh, members of Congress that will support him, not just really on a, on a even on a political, on a ideological level at all, because who knows what the ideology is anymore, but on a, on a personal level around stuff like, you know, can, you know, w- would they object to uh, certifying election results? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, if, if there is, if there is media, do you believe the certification, the threat that they won't certify election results is media BS, or do you think there's something to that? Um, I think there has to be something to it. I mean, I think I, I think the gravity of it, or you know, the democracy destroying potential of it is probably overstated, and you know, as, as always, is kind of fused with this you know standard uh, liberal histrionics. Um, but on the on the other hand, you know, it is true that something like twenty states brought what was an absolutely absurd lawsuit. In December 2020, to the Supreme Court, um, to basically go the Supreme Court into intervening in the certification process, and uh, every um, Supreme Court justice, including the ones that Trump appointed, uh, declined to issue, de- declined to grant the relief that was sought, which was an emergency yeah. injunction against the certification of the results. So I mean, they, they could even get Clarence Thomas yeah. to support that. Um, and yeah, I think I think, I think that, you know I think they do that for politics and then like 
if the Supreme Court did actually grant it, I think they would have, you know, peed their pants. They wouldn't have been, they would have been like the dog that caught the car. They wouldn't have had any idea what to do. I think the conservative justices were doing them a favor. Yeah, well, you know, I think the uh, the the one of the ringleaders among the attorneys general who um, organized, I mean, the Republican attorneys general who organized to bring that suit was uh, Ken Paxton from Texas. Yeah. And uh, he's running in a contested primary right now against George P. Bush. Uh-huh. And uh, Ken Paxton is basically running because he's Ken Paxton has been mired in scandal for years. I mean, in 2014 or 15, he was indicted um, for uh, securities fraud. And that's still unresolved. Uh, and there have been a bunch of other scandals. And so he's basically papering over that by just pointing to how um, aggressive he was in you know, trying to help Trump in 2020 and you know, related in- initiatives in, uh, to so, kind of appeal, appeal to Republican primary voters in yeah. Texas. So I just Googled this because I was interested how the Bush name is to polling in Texas Republicans now. And so there's just one poll I find from a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it has Paxton beating George Bush by like uh, 30 points. <laughs> so the Bush name is thankfully, I mean, the name George Bush doesn't look to be much of a benefit in Texas anymore. Yeah, yeah. And George P. Bush is Jeb's son, <laughs> which is even worse, probably, politically. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I think, you know, and it also, you know, I, I, I think that the significance of January 6th has been widely overstated as well. Um, but I think Clearly, there is a huge faction of the Republican Party who's been uh, radicalized around what they regard to be, you know, um, seismic election fraud issues, and you know, to the to the point that I don't think they've ever even really bothered to do like an autopsy of the 2020 election. I think you and I actually might have talked about this on, on YouTube or something around this time, but you know, given the fixation on these election fraud theories, which were extremely intense, at least during uh, the fall of 2020 and then even afterwards, um, you know, they never even really looked into how it is that Trump actually overperformed in, amongst a lot of demographics, including, you know, obviously Latinos. And it wasn't just in Texas or among Cubans. It was uh, even in L.A. where you are. I mean, there were there were he made giant inroads <laughs> almost to an incredible level amongst some of the more heavy, heavily uh, Latino uh, enclaves within even L.A., uh, which obviously is not a you know, battleground area for the overall election result. Um, yeah, so I mean I think great, I I think it's just you know I, yeah oh, the, oh yeah just on that part there was a great graphic on uh, the switch between 2016 and 2020 and shows you like by area and so you can go to the Asian areas in LA uh, the Hispanic areas uh, you can zoom in and it was uh, it was it was quite amazing I mean the, what's happening with sort of minorities in the in the country now one of them is I think 2016 was particularly bad because he focused more on the immigration issue and like the stuff about like white supremacy it was sort of original back then in 2016 so it was like new so like some people bought into it by 2020 I, I saw Trump talk to even though he did a lot on immigration to restrict immigration actually um, he uh, he um he stopped i noticed he stopped talking about the issue i was watching you know his rallies like in the uh in the uh, 2020 election Uh, so he stopped talking about immigration um so and and uh, the white supremacy thing wore off and so he just you know uh you know just uh basically surged with these minority voters particularly the uh the Cubans, I mean, the Cuban, like Miami Dade, it was like some ridiculous, uh, it was some ridiculous, uh, switch between 2016 and 2020, like 20 points or something, uh, something like that. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is what happened culturally with the Democratic Party in the last, you know, four years, I think turned off a lot of uh, non-college educated people of all races. Um, so yeah, it's, um, what, what, were, what, were we, uh, what were we talking about? Well, yeah, uh, yeah, well, I mean, just in terms of like, do I think it's legitimate oh, yeah. uh, what's being prophesied that Republicans could actually, you know, do what, Apparently, a lot of Trump supporters, even Trump himself, wanted, which you know, which is, for example, to have Trump, uh, Mike Pence, like single-handedly veto the election certification. Um, you know, I think there's a plausible likelihood of that. I mean, the Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania, yeah, only became known. I mean, he was an obscure state senator who had just been elected in 2018, Doug Mastriano, and he only became known because he was the number one advocate. And ringleader in Pennsylvania supporting Trump's, you know, election fraud claims and trying to not have the slate of delegates sent to the Electoral College and all this. So, I mean, if he were to, if he does, if he were to win the gubernatorial election, which is the good chance he will, given the national uh, headwinds, yeah. um, you know, that that could have a legitimate it's gonna be hilarious. effect it's gonna be hilarious There's, trump is just gonna lose pennsylvania <laughs> i mean it it, it, it it particularly with this guy you know mastriano <laughs> yeah i think this his election theories if, his election fraud, happen, his, yeah yeah his election fraud theories are not just like incidental to why he's running they're the entire reason why he's a prominent figure <laughs> yeah that's funny is he, is he oh, a good politician have you seen him speak i've never really watched him talk the, the, could, is he like a joke who's gonna lose who's gonna possibly blow this or is he uh is he? Uh, does he seem to have some appeal besides the uh, the election fraud stuff? Um, you know, I'm I don't I'm not that familiar with him. I I watched me a couple things that he did around the 2020 period. You know, when there was all the conflict over the election. I mean, I think you know clearly he has some political savvy just by winning the Republican primary because it was very yeah that it was very um, to a good yeah uh, general election though. No, no, no. But I mean, just to win the primary was sort of a political accomplishment because it was it was uh, tightly it was uh, competitive. Um, so there were other even just, you know, uh, there were other uh, high profile Pennsylvania Republicans who also sought the gubernatorial nomination. He he won by pretty much a landslide uh, and Parker's Trump endorsed him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think uh, he's got a, he's you know, got people, a PhD. You know that? Yeah, in the, uh, from the Naval uh, Army uh, Army Naval no like Naval Intelligence College or something. Uh, no, I was looking into his history from uh, University of New Brunswick. Okay, yeah, he has other sort of he has like a yeah, yeah, masters has in the a, National yeah. Intelligence University, and uh, I was looking at his bio on the Pennsylvania Legislature website, and it said that he was the lead planner for one of the scenarios around the invasion of Iraq in two thousand three via Turkey. Uh huh. Okay. Um, so that, 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 yeah, the Turkey <laughs> route didn't happen. Yeah, but he was he was gonna he was gonna be the guy who who was gonna do it. I guess. He was gonna, uh, I guess. I mean, I don't know. The only detail that I see is that Mas- it says this is what he writes of himself. He was the lead planner for a planned invasion of Iraq via Turkey. Uh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so I'm sort of curious how the MAGA crowd feels about that uh, <laughs> aspect of his uh, professional biography. 
he fought three um, times. Deployed three times to Afghanistan. So okay. So what I'm seeing is he's got a he's got a you know brain enough. He's got brain to you know he's got some education. He's got a military career. Uh, as a veteran. So maybe yeah maybe yeah. And, and, he, and he wrote he he wrote actually a he wrote a book that uh, won some awards in the field of like military studies. Oh really? On okay. this um, sergeant. A sergeant um, in World War One involved him doing like original research in uh-huh. France and stuff around like the battlefield tactics of this uh, sergeant. His name is Alvin York. Uh-huh. Um, so I mean, the guy is not, uh, you know, he's not like a Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene or something, right? In terms of his uh, acumen, um, yeah. So I mean, I, I think it, I think there's a decent chance that he would he will win the. Um, the gubernatorial election, and you know Pennsylvania is a huge state in yeah. terms of the electoral college. So I mean, who the hell knows? Yeah, if you just if you just take Pennsylvania off the map and you just give it to Republicans, yeah, the odds in twenty twenty four are very very good. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so, so today, um, Richard, as I'm sure you are aware, the Senate passed the uh, forty billion dollars in Ukraine funding, and. It's sort of similar to what happened with the House last week where you had a handful of senators uh, who were Republicans voted against it. It was 11 in total. Um, and then but then when you go through their explanations for why they voted against it, um, a lot of them you know, go to great lengths to clarify that they're not actually against on principle funding or arming Ukraine. They just claim that they object to the details or to technical aspects of this current uh, package. And uh, you know, even Rand Paul, uh, who probably is the most likely to have a more principled opposition to something like ar- arming Ukraine, um, he's been clear uh, since the war started that he doesn't actually oppose sending arms to Ukraine. Uh, it's just a matter of how it's paid for for him. Um, so, I mean, when... Uh, again, yeah, I think if you're a libertarian, I think you're fine with people just buying weapons from you right i think i think he's consistent well no that. not really because Rand paul has led initiatives to oppose the authorization of arms sales to other countries like saudi arabia um egypt and well egypt, well, egypt, egypt they I, I don't know about saudi but egypt they buy it with american money. egypt i think you know i'm pretty sure it's american aid uh, that goes that goes back. Um, so I think you have to check in each one of these cases. I mean, yeah, but I'm sure that in the Saudi case, I'm sure Saudi the Saudis would uh, pay for it. Uh, but yeah, well, but, it's, I, but, it's, but, but it's not like Rand Paul on, uh, has a principle uh, has like some libertarian belief where it's fine if any country wants to buy U.S. weapons. No, he's actually utilized the oversight authorities afforded to him to prevent certain countries from being able to purchase arms. I mean, that, that, that the Saudi initiative didn't go through. It was blocked in the Senate, but Interesting. Okay, so, um, yeah. he's, he's pursued that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Paul, okay. So Rand Paul, yeah, because of the war with Yemen, he wants says, I want to send a message to Saudi. So he's, he's, uh, he's anti-war. Okay. So he doesn't want reprehensible humanitarian crisis. So he's an anti-war guy. That's also goes with his, uh, libertarianism. Uh, you're right. And so, but in the, um, look, I, I think the, um, I think the comments, so I've seen like three or four of them, and they're basically, they're, I've seen Mike Braun, I've seen Josh Howley, and I've seen uh, uh, Rand Paul. Um, and each one of those cases, they were basically saying, 
uh, you know, we love Ukraine. Ukraine are good people, yeah. but, you know, we care about America. So it's, it's, it wasn't a procedural thing. It wasn't like more debate and then we'll send Ukraine money. I mean, at least those three, they were saying, they were saying basically we shouldn't be sending any aid to Ukraine. And so, you know, that, but, but, that's. Hold on, though. Mike Braun, I have a statement from Mike Braun right in front of me. Um, he says, I support helping Ukraine expel the Russian invasion. But as inflation, gas prices, and shortages wall up Americans here at home, I can't support $40 billion of new spending unless it's offset with cuts or taken with from already authorized funds. Okay. Well, so he's saying that he would support it if it was paid for was in a way that he finds – Yeah. If it was revenue neutral. So, yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, we're, we're, we're quibbling of it. That's like – it's like um, – it's like he's a libertarian, right? So he gets something. Braun is, you know, a bit of a libertarian too. Uh, so he gets something if you cut spending. So it's like if you give me something I like, right? You cut whatever, uh, you know, Medicare or something, forty billion, like or or the military, right? It's revenue neutral. I'll give you, I mean, few people are gonna. You're right that nobody is standing up and saying this whole thing is insane. We shouldn't be doing this. You're right. Well, there Nobody's were a couple, a couple in the house, a couple of people in the house did. So like Paul Gosar, right? Who, okay, yeah. Um, he actually stated a principled opposition to sending arms from Ukraine because he said that it was counterproductive in achieving some kind of negotiated settlement. So there are people who actually express their opposition on a principled ground. And I'm saying that at least among the explanations that I've seen from the Republican senators, they're, they're not doing that. And it kind of gives them an out because they can say, oh, look, you know, of course we support Ukraine, but we don't like how Biden is doing it. Um, so, you know, here's Cynthia Loomis, senator from uh, Wyoming, quote, I am who voted against it today. Quote, I am fully in support of Ukraine and its efforts to push back on Russian aggression. I am, however, concerned about this particular request. President Biden requested 33 billion, yet we are voting on 40 billion dollar package. It is important to give Ukraine the support they need, but we also need to be pragmatic about the amount of money we're spending. So, I mean, in theory, that means that if it were 20 billion instead of 40 billion, she might have supported it. So, I mean, I, I guess that's why I just caution against over-interpreting these votes as indicative of this burgeoning anti-war sentiment in the Republican Party, because it really isn't. Well, the, the, either way, it's only 11 votes, right? So we can't get, you know, we can't get two out of ourselves no matter what, right? Even if they were all principled anti-interventionists. So, you know, it's 11 out of 50 senators or so. So it's like, you know, 80 percent of the uh, Republican uh, senators are still voting for this thing. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my view is like, okay, like you know, you, you take you take what you can get. Like, it, it's it's people are going to have different levels of courage, right? Like during the Iraq War, you know, I bet a lot of you know a lot of people who oppose the Iraq War, you know, they had a bit of courage to do that, and they never said you know this whole thing is BS. They would say you know work with our allies. You know, that's what politicians do. They they try to take some kind of well work with our allies to you know bring Saddam Hussein to justice or work with our allies to contain Saddam Hussein rather than. But you know, I'm I'm happy for anyone who opposed the Iraq War in 2003, even if they didn't make you know the strongest, most principled uh, statement possible. I think, you know, that's what it's, it's going to, you know, like you're never going to get Republic. I think Republicans are, um, it's going to be hard to like, you know, just given their ideology and how they talk and how they think it's going to be hard to ever get them to be like, you know, humanitarians, like uh, the, what's happening with the squad and what you're, the things you're tweeting about, about Bar Bernie Sanders and AOC, this is fascinating, right? Because you think these people would be humanitarians. They would be anti-war on principle. If Republicans are going to be anti-war, it's going to be some kind of stupid budget budget thing. It's going to be, oh, you know, we don't, we don't like deficits. We don't want to, we don't want to spend money. We've got a, uh, you know, uh, deficits, all that, you know, balanced budget, all that stuff um 
And so this is like how I expect Republicans to be anti-war. I don't expect them to to be principled, you know, principled anti-war, except maybe you might want that from uh, Rand Paul and maybe some libertarians. Uh, but the squad, I mean, the left, I mean, have you seen have you seen anything? Do you, these people, I, I haven't looked, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, do they put out statements or do they just vote for the stuff and then go see? I haven't seen anything of substance from AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar. Um, Ro Khanna, who's not quite in the squad, um, but, but, you know, uh, is considered, you know, one of the progressive flagship members of the House, um, and who actually in the past, as recently as 2018 and 2019, was the lead advocate in the House for, for example, uh, prohibiting the provision of arms to the Azov Battalion on the ground that, according to Ro Khanna, that they were neo-Nazi. And he went further than that. He actually organized a letter in uh, the House in 2018 that uh, was signed by 52 uh, members where they were complaining that not only is Azov Battalion neo-Nazi. Yeah, I remember um, this, yeah. Yeah, but that, but that it was just one component of this overall troubling trend, as they saw it, in Ukraine, whereby um, there was this surge in a government-sponsored Nazi glorification. That's the way that it was phrased in the letter. Um, and uh, Kana was also mu- very much against just lethal aid in general being sent to Ukraine because he thought that it would increase the likelihood of drawing the U.S. into a war. <laughs> and he, re- he, re- he reiterated that just uh, this past February uh, before the invasion. And now he's voting for the he's voting for the uh, the, the funding bills without comment, really. Um, so it, it is amazing. And you know, Ro Khanna was, I, I Ro Khanna was, was the co-chair of the Bernie Sanders primary campaign in 2020. I thought I saw a tweet or some statement from him in which he explained how everything changed in Ukraine. Um, yeah, he did. He did come out with that. Yeah, so he, he's, one of, he's one of the few, you know, and I guess credit to him, he actually is reasonably transparent in explaining his votes. But in terms of AOC um, and uh, Omar and these people, they've really said, I mean, maybe I've missed it and somebody can correct me, but they really said almost nothing that at least just explains their thinking. And so like, the question that occurs to me is, you know, to what extent, at least for somebody like AOC, who clearly hasn't, you know, what is she, 31? She hasn't spent her life developing, you know, passionate convictions about Ukraine. Um, So, you know, is is this policy choice that she's making now a function of the whip whip operation in the House, like the Pelosi and Clyburn are are doing? Or is she actually, like, a true believer? I, I would be curious to sort of parse that out if she could ever get around to, like, Speaking about what her thinking is, <laughs> so I found a I found a headline here. Ilhan Omar is fighting a lonely battle against the muscle memory driving Democrats' response to Russia's war in Ukraine. So this is from the end of March. Uh, it's like Omar's criticized sanctions. Um, she's uh, you know she's uh, let's see what else is here. Uh, failing progressives are failing to stand for their convictions. Uh, this uh, violates uh, progressive values. Um, so how, how is she? So, okay, so you would think she would vote against sanctions, but no, she has not, right? Or well, she, 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 yeah. she criticized she, – she, she has voted against, I think, one sanctions bill um, on the basis – I mean, there have been so many that you, know, sort of, you sort of lose track. Um, and she, vo- she expressed – yeah, like it, she expressed in March kind of tentative wariness about sending 
arms to Ukraine. But then she quickly clarified that it wasn't yeah. she had that she was against it on principle again, which that she thought that maybe it was too much or something. But she got totally pilloried for that. So the squad and ever, and ever since she's been on the board, she's been on board. So the squad voted against Ukraine military aid in uh, early March. You're saying she got they got pilloried and then they they've stopped doing that. Uh, yeah, I thought that that's how that's my reading of it. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so I mean, actually, what's... no, Il- Ilhan Omar. So credit to Ilhan, the very brave Ilhan Omar, who who once liked a tweet of mine, uh, and I've always cherished that moment. Uh, she, um, yeah, she voted no. Two Democrats, her and um, uh, guess who the other one is? Um, oh no, this is something. This is something. What else. bill was this? No, no. Okay, so ban ban on Russia energy imports. Uh, two oh, right. progressives yeah, yeah. voted against that. That was uh, Ilhan Omar, and you know, guess who the second one is? Um, oh, I don't think it was AOC. No. A second Democrat. I mean, was it in this somebody in the squad? Talib. Uh, I think uh, this one is considered part of the squad. Yeah, yeah. Cory Bush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then the seizing oligarchs, uh, the squad voted against that too, seizing oligarch stuff. I'm surprised they want to see, seize oligarch uh, property. That seems like sort of their thing. Uh, and then I don't know about the um, 40 billion, but there does seem to be, you know, they're not speaking up, um, you know, as loud as uh, Barbara Lee, by the way, is in favor of this, uh, of the uh, Ukraine, is very strongly in favor of the Ukraine aid. She was the only one who voted, yeah. was voting against the Afghanistan war back in uh, 2001. Uh, yeah, and so, it's still lionized for that. And, you know, she's 100% on board with the consensus now. She actually went to Ukraine, or she actually went to Poland on this delegation with Pelosi a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, I think actually maybe. Yeah, here's Glenn, Glenn's uh, substack. He says unanim, unanim, the $40 billion was unanimous. Yeah, the uh, $40 billion was unanimous. Okay, so that's, that's the one. That, so up until that, it seems like the squad was at least ambiguous, you know, at least uh, sort of uh, ambivalent about this stuff. Um, the, the $40 billion thing is, is a little strange. Yeah, I think they see no, I think they must see no point. Right. I think they must see, you know, like, it's just like, this is a, a train and like, it's, you know, we're going to get the establishment to hate us. And like, what's, what's even the point? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they would definitely get excoriated if they were to, for example, vote against the 40 billion. Um, the Democrats and Chuck Schumer reiterated this uh, today when he gave his floor speech before the Senate voted. Um, the, the Democrats def- clearly want to make an issue out of how there is this small, you know, the minority of the Republican Party who they are saying are soft on Putin and are, you know, following the example of Trump and, you know, excusing Putin or whatever. And so for a Democrat to vote against it would complicate that political narrative that at least some of the more senior level Democrats want to promote. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I wish, you know, AOC would just uh, simply provide an explanation and she hasn't really. You know, I think, I think, I actually think of the, the Bernie Sanders angle is, is also interesting because um, for, a, after the 2016 campaign, uh-huh. Um, 
that you know Bernie versus Hillary, it was clear that you know almost immediately he began preparing for a second run um, in 2020, which obviously he ultimately did launch. And um, it was clear that one of the political tacks that he calculated that he had to make was to ingratiate himself more with the kind of you know this is sort of a buzzword, but the establishment of the Democratic Party. So he would. Um, coordinate on different initiatives with Chuck Schumer. He did this thing that was labeled a uh, DNC unity tour in 2017 where he tra- uh, traveled around the country with then chairman of the DNC, Tom Perez. Mm. Um, he uh, you know, was basically just trying to make himself out to be not a threat to the Democratic party in a way that could, you know, potentially hinder him in a forthcoming uh, primary. And a part of that strategy was also uh, also seemed to involve him you know, at least um sometimes tepidly, sometimes a little bit more forcefully getting behind different aspects of the whole Russiagate drama. Um so, you know, I I pulled up tweets today from 2017 of him saying, you know, what does Putin have on Trump? Um and, you know, during the 2020 primaries, he would even do ridiculous things where, you know, before the Iowa caucus, he did a whole live stream where he was talking about this latest, like, Rachel Maddow type of development of Lev Parnas providing information related to the impeachment of Trump on uh, Ukraine stuff that first time around. And it just came across as totally ridiculous uh, coming from him because it didn't seem like it was an animating issue for him. Uh, but But clearly, I mean, I think he actually um, – you know, he's never been anywhere near as uh, quote-unquote left-wing on foreign policy as some might assume, especially if you compare him to some, somebody like uh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, who is basically who, – whose predilections on something like the Ukraine are non-existent within the U.S. context. Like Corbyn actually has been vocally against the um, provision of arms to Ukraine and yeah. is you know kind of just more of a kind of – classic position that you'd think that he somebody in his position would have whereas bernie truly hasn't um and you know i've been referencing this tweet from bernie's top foreign policy advisor um matt dust in uh, march where he was basically chastising the left quote unquote for not recognizing that uh, biden's policy on ukraine was what dust called quote the responsible progressive position um and uh so you know, if that's the responsible, if, if Biden's policy has been the responsible progressive position, I hate to see what, like, I don't know, the moderate position is because it's been uh, pretty aggressive in a whole host of ways that we don't have to really relitigate. But I think it really is striking that Bernie Sanders, who supposedly led this uh, renaissance of uh, left wing activism and, you know, uh, shift, you know, mainstream socialism and had this kind of uh, five year continuous presidential campaign. Uh, where he's energizing the youth and so on and so forth, or he's just basically now just another prong of the pro-war consensus. And what does that tell you about the state of the so-called American left? That it, that it cares about identity issues and then second economic issues and, and uh, doesn't doesn't care about American foreign policy. I mean, that's that's what it tells you. It's it, it's been co. I mean, it's basically been co-opted by. Uh, I wonder how much this, you know, woke stuff in the military, how much of that actually matters and how much it's just, you know, the power, the power structures within the Democratic Party. Anyway, if you're ambitious, 
I mean, it's 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 really it's hard because you're you're going. It's a two party system, and you're going against your own party unless you take it over from the top. Um, it's it's hard to work your way up. And all these people, if if foreign policy is your not that's your priority, and it's you know it's not for these people. Um, you see why they wouldn't they wouldn't want the fight. Yeah, um, but, uh, yeah. I think you know, but for for Bernie, I mean, he has been involved in some foreign policy issues over the years. Obviously, his emphasis has more been on economics. Um, but you know, he would even bring up Iraq uh, to over the course of the primary campaigns in 2016 and 2020 to criticize both Biden and uh, Hillary Clinton. He, oh yeah, Being you know, he there was the one. Big, yeah, That's there was the for leftist. No, no, but he, but in 2016, like one of the probably the best moments or the most uh, note, notable moments that stick out of my memory f- from that campaign was when uh, Bernie Sanders brought up Henry Kissinger in the middle of debate and uh, denounced Hillary Clinton for saying how much she cherished the uh, counsel that Henry Kissinger was providing her. And that was sort of a big deal because uh, Henry Kissinger is, um, had never really been – Challenged in that way on a on a national stage by a prominent uh, politician, um, so although it wasn't his emphasis, I mean he's been enough involved over the years that you'd think that he might have some kind of uh, I don't know inclination on this subject to not just lurch into the consensus knee jerk view. But I think the the only conclusion you could really come away with is that he's also a true believer. Um, I think. Uh, you know, so the the, the Russia Gate uh, credence that he gave over the course of Trump's term was probably also uh, mm-hmm. genuine, and uh, you know that's just who he is. You think Sanders, so, you think Sanders is a true believer in American uh, uh, foreign policy? It's hard to square. I mean, it's hard to square with his sort of. Uh, was he not? I mean, I, I assume not when the not during the Cold War, right? Honey, yeah, yeah, less so. I mean, definitely less so at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, he, uh, for example, in the 90s, he voted for the Iraq uh, Liberation Act, which was the precursor to, which was basically a codification of the right. desire of the U.S. to impose regime change in Iraq. He, you know, then he voted against the war. Uh, but, you know, over the years, he supported, um, you know, he supported the uh, bombing of Kosovo. He um, has supported drone strikes and stuff over the years. So, I mean, I, maybe it's oversimplified to say he's just a supporter of U.S. foreign policy. I just think that, the, at least in terms of this vote today, it's a reflection of his genuine values as to what the U.S. should be doing. Yeah, um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. the Iraq Liberation Act was unanimous consent. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. The entire Senate and almost every member of the House, except, you know, 30 or 40 of them, uh, you know, just said we're going to overthrow this, you know, the, our policy is to overthrow this country. That, that meant at the time, you know, Shalabi of the Iraq National Congress. I mean, it's amazing how crazy we were even before 9-11. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, unlike Jeremy Corbyn, who's, who has emphasized foreign policy to a large extent, which in part is why he ended up getting expelled from the Labor Party uh, once he lost the general election in 2019, um, and who has kind of sta- stood firm in um, maintaining his uh, foreign policy convictions, uh, even now, even though he's uh, no longer allowed in the parliamentary Labour Party, uh, Bernie is just a, just sort of a more go along to get along guy on this subject, and 
there you go. That, there you have it. I don't know what more evidence can really be proffered on that. No, I, I, I agree with you. Bernie is not. Bernie is not a is not a pacifist. He's, he is in the American context, just because like everyone else is so pro war. But you're right. No, in the global leftist conflict con- context, definitely not. Yep. Um, okay. So, like last uh, little uh, sub bit here, and then we'll take uh, calls. But on the in terms of Mariupol, which is the title of this room, um, <laughs> it was sort of funny because. You know, since the war began, so much of the U.S. media coverage has basically been just quoting what Ukraine government officials say is happening and making that into a news story. So, you know, defense minister says X, Y, Z, and then that somehow becomes just like the latest NBC News update or something. And uh, when it was announced that... Basically, these Azov uh, fighters in the steel plant in Mariupol were going to be uh, surrendering. The media immediately just began to parrot the terminology that was being used by (laughs) the Ukraine military and by Zelensky's office and such and called it this uh, evacuation and said it was an end of the combat mission. So you almost got to say, like, if you weren't familiar with what was going on, you would almost think that it was a triumphant thing for Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, or that they were, you know, declaring victory or whatever. Um, meanwhile, and they also, it was also just kind of mindlessly repeated that there was going to be a prisoner swap. And Russia, as far as I could tell, never actually, at least publicly, agreed to that any, there being any kind of prisoner swap. There has been none, as far as I can tell yet. Um, so basically what happened is that, the, you know, the siege ended, they were given orders to surrender and surrendered, and the the media just sprung into action, putting the best possible spin on it. And, you know, it took a couple of days before even the word surrender was used. I mean, I was sort of surprised yesterday that in a New York Times article, they actually did use the term mass surrender. Um, and, you know, it kind of gets back to a paradox that I think we've, we've touched on before, which is that, you know, on the one hand you have all this triumphalism about the successes of Ukraine that kind of dominates the popular narrative in the U.S. about the status of the war. And on the other hand, you have, you know, what seems like a pretty significant event, which is that, you know, Russia takes control, you know, officially of this strategically important uh, port city. And uh, apparently that has no impact at all on how the status Mm -hmm. of the war is perceived to be going. So, I mean, I just don't know how anybody squares that yeah i mean it is you know it's you the the headlines were like ukraine ends it's so funny it was a siege that they eventually surrendered so the the headline is ukraine ends its military operation at variable like they're you know the u.s pulling out of afghanistan or something you know they just decided that this was you know the end of it. it's like and that's not you know that's clearly not uh what happened? So it was a very, it was a, a very strange sort of headline just to accept the Ukrainian framing. I, you know, the stuff about the um, the prisoner change. I mean, that's a possibility, right? That that could happen at some point. Um, yeah, it hasn't happened yet, and there's no evidence um, that it's going to happen uh, uh, anytime soon. Um, and you're right that taking Mariupol. I mean, the what's going on right now in Ukraine? I mean, the uh, uh, 
basically what Russia just what they hold right now, they they hold the biggest uh, nuclear plant in Europe. Um, they basically have an economic blockade from the sea. So nothing can get in. No ship, no ship is um, uh, getting in. I, uh, basically, you can't, uh, you can't insure the ships uh, to go into the Black Sea. So they have the port, the big port city, Odessa, that's still in Ukrainian hands. But, uh, you know, the Russians have Mariupol and they have much of the rest of the, the, the east, um, uh, much of the coast. And so Ukraine is, you know, being strangled. Uh, you know, the, the south apparently has the good uh, farmland, uh, too. Um, and so, you, I mean, Ukraine is in, you know, in, in a really bad, bad shape. I mean, the the you, Russia could potentially. I mean, if it if it gains nothing else, if all if it only holds um, what it has, um, in the Ukraine, Ukraine can be strangled indefinitely. And the uh, uh, the refugee, um, uh, my uh, friend Alex, uh, I, I forget, I, don't, I forget how to pronounce his name, Naraste or something. Um, he is um, he tracks the Ukraine uh, refugee outflow every day on Twitter, um, and so you know it doesn't. Last I checked, doesn't appear to be slowing down. I mean, they're still losing a uh, you know like a, they've lost like fifteen twenty percent of the population um, has gone um, has gone somewhere else, and so it's. Been Basically, I mean, it's a country that's have that you know. This is like not a good outcome for Ukraine. It's a country that's uh, depopulating, that's losing, um, you know, its economy is crushed, that its long term future is you know in doubt. And but it has tons and tons of weapons, and it fights, and maybe it fights gallantly. Um, but still, it's you know, it's a terrible outcome for Ukraine. So sort of like thinking that this is like supporting Ukraine, just continuing down our, our the current path. I mean, maybe that's what the, it certainly seems like that's what the Zelensky and the Ukrainian government want. Uh, that doesn't mean that's the best thing for you know standing for with Ukraine or what the what's good best for the Ukrainian people. Um, and uh, you're right, the media coverage. I mean, is what the media coverage is. I think there's just been so. You know, this is like the boring part of the war. You know, the the like the exciting thing is like you know when when the you know when the Russians invade and like you know it starts and like you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to fall and what's going to uh, stay in Ukrainian hands. And like the the now you're in like sort of the World War One. Uh, you know, it's probably not going to last that long, but sort of the the uh, the war of attrition phase. And you know, we're we're losing we're losing interest. Um, in it and you know our leaders aren't losing interest i think the masses are losing interest but i think the leaders are continuing to although eventually this stuff is going to add up to real money i mean the ukrainians have gotten all the ukrainians i mean are going through the uh uh the aid really really fast they're always saying that you know if they don't get more they will uh just not be able to fight anymore and so you know we've we these are massive amounts i mean 40 billion in a few months i mean the uh you know 40 billion but plus would be it's uh, 50 it's it's almost 60 billion if you take it to account the whole calendar year yeah this, this, right. is the, this is just the biggest tranche that's been passed so yeah far. calendar year i mean things only been going on for two you know uh three months now uh so that would be like you know like a quarter you know if you if you uh extrapolate to like uh, uh the end of the year and keeps giving money like this it's going to be like a third of the defense budget right are we gonna indefinitely you know ukraine's gonna have to do a breakthrough uh it's gonna you know have to settle this thing or uh we're gonna increase our defense spending uh by a third you know, for the next, for this year, next year, and, and definitely into the future. It's good. That, that stuff adds up. I mean, I, I don't think we can do that forever. And the thing is, like, when you have um, funding packages like this allocated, isn't now the incentive for the U.S. to ensure that it receives, like, a return on the investment? So, like, are they going to, at some point, be willing to acknowledge just, like, sunk costs um, after having spent all this money? 
Um, it seems like, in other words, the more and more money that's allocated, the more and more kind of um, unmovable the U.S. resolve is going to be to ensure that its goals are achieved, which I, I guess the goal is now – you know, def- outright defeat of Russia, whatever that means exactly. And uh, as Lloyd Austin said when he was on that secret mission to Ki- uh, Kiev, uh, weaken Russia um, and potentially even do some kind of regime change thing. Um, so I, I, I guess, you know, once, you know, one thing I've always tried to point out from the outset is that the longer this goes on and the more and more that's uh, spent and the more that's invested, uh, the more uh, irreversible the kind of momentum is going to be toward like an ultimate conclusion that could also uh, potentially result in more direct uh, military confrontation. You know, like a lot of the, the the explanation that a lot of politicians have given for why they voted for this bill, including some Republicans, is that you know they're saying you know Ted Cruz said this. Ted Cruz said that it was actually quote fiscally conservative to support this funding package because. <laughs> If Ukraine is not victorious right now, then the U.S. taxpayer is going to be on the hook for much more money later on because Russia is not going to stop invading. And, uh, you know, actually, another thing that I wanted to ask you about in terms of like the Republican view on this stuff is something that I'm sure you've noticed, which is that, you know, obviously somebody like a Ted Cruz is aware that there is a faction of the Republican voter base and also of like the pundit class who is at least like preliminarily skeptical of whether the U.S. ought to be involved in Ukraine to this degree. So if you watch Ted Cruz's speech, which was actually from yesterday, but it was about uh, – it, it was him announcing that he was going to support the bill and giving his reasoning. And uh, he, it, it was like structured as a rebuttal of some of these right-wing complaints. Mm-hmm. And um, – so one of the rebuttal, one of the points of rebuttal that he raised was this idea that you know it's too much money, um, and you know why aren't we spending the money at home instead? And he you know gave the argument that you know we're going to be spending way more money if uh, we don't defeat Russia here and now. But then he uh-huh. also said something that you know I think is probably even more common in terms of trying to wrangle Republican support for the intervention in Ukraine, which is tying it to China. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know how they know for sure. I mean, they just speak with such like metaphysical certitude you know, that China is keenly watching what's <laughs> happening in Ukraine. And if the U.S. doesn't make sure that Russia pays a heavy price, then that means she is going to be emboldened to invade Taiwan. Like how they know this? I mean, this is why I, I've, I've mentioned to you a couple times my annoyance at this whole like mode of speculative punditry, like okay, so how do you know that? Like, I mean, cite something tangible that demonstrates why you're so why you think it's so sound to just conclude that there's this kind of intrinsic connection between Ukraine and Taiwan. I mean, I see that asserted a lot, um, but it's not proven. It's not there's nothing, no real evidence for it. It's just what they've inferred. 
Um, and you oh, know no, they're making stuff up. I mean, they say that about the Afghanistan withdrawal. You withdraw yeah. from Afghanistan. Every dictator, like the dictators, like you know, they're watching. They have like a big screen TV, and they're all watching, and they're saying, you know, is America strong or is America weak? And like they're all just, you know, they've got their finger on the button, and they're going to invade their neighbors. Uh, you know, as, as soon as they know that America is like, it's like you know, it's it's it's, it's a ridiculous thing. And you can justify anything. You can justify any war, any time by saying someone else is one. Like this thing doesn't seem like it matters like you know afghanistan that doesn't matter but people are watching so if they're watching you know you always have to worry about it i mean this is this is a it's this it's a, you know it's completely unprovable right you can't like ever like refute this because it's just like so stupid i mean you could you could say you know the opposite that the if the u.s bankrupts itself it's going to be like in a worse position to face china i mean a lot of people say this makes sense that like if you're afraid of china like you want to try to be nicer to russia right you don't want to fight everyone at the same time um, and so that's it. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. Ted Cruz has always been, you know, very bad on the, on the foreign policy stuff, just a very straight down the line conventional Republican. I mean, Josh Hawley uh, voted, you know, against the, uh, against the, uh, 40, 40 uh, billion on Ukraine. So some of these people are more like in the populist way, which is a real thing. I mean, you poo poo it a little bit, but I've never seen a, uh, sizable faction within the uh, Republican Party vote against any anti-war thing, any point in history, whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president. You know, as long as I've been paying attention to politics, uh, you know, the last uh, you know since uh, the last twenty twenty-five years, Republicans have always been very, very pro-war, and there's never you know been like even a faction. There's been like individuals like like Ron Paul uh, who are against war, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, there's something there, and you're right. The, the you know, Cruz is uh, a particularly uh, you know noxious uh, person on 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 these uh, issues. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, I, I it's uh, you know, it's it's like it's it's so. I mean, it, it is so stupid. It's like you don't even know how to respond to it. <laughs> it's like Afghanistan, like did, like had did Afghanistan? They follow. They told us there would be terrorism. They told us you know. The world would collapse. I mean, have as many Americans been killed by terrorism since that happened? No. I saw somebody blame the invasion of Ukraine on it. I mean, it's just anything that happens in the world yeah. is connected. I mean, they did, one thing is disproved, and something else will happen in the world, and you'll say, "Well, that was caused by the Afghanistan withdrawal." Well, you say it, it's um, so stupid, and I agree, but it's it's really ubiquitous among. Republicans, I mean, they're not quite ubiquitous in terms of this China angle that they try to shoehorn in, but it's extremely common. You know, I was listening last week to this um, national security uh, summit that the National Review convened in D.C. at the at the press club, and uh, Tom Cotton was the keynote speaker, and uh, everybody who spoke, um, including Tom Cotton, who was like the worst on foreign policy uh made sure to draw this like direct causal connection between Ukraine and Russia almost as though again they're doing this like pre-rebuttal of republican skepticism by saying look of course this is in our national interest not just by dint of Ukraine itself but because of the global implications uh, as relates to China about who which is our you know longer term adversary yeah and but what is what is the, even the china thing about i mean what are they what do they think china is going to do to them i think that i think, well, the think they're going to invade like, that china is going to invade taiwan that's what they think uh is, is it just about is it just about taiwan i mean they, they well that's the, that's that's the thing that they most often cite 
Yeah, that is the thing they most uh, often cite. But you think if China made peace with Ta- like the you know recognized Taiwanese independence, these people would. No, I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's really about that. I mean, I think I think they would still rail against China. They need a they need a they need a um, you know, it's it, that's uh you know one of the arguments in my book that basically the 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 military industrial complex, you know, the foreign policy hawks, the people who are psychologically predisposed to feeling good about America going around the world and telling people what to do. Um, you know, they, they need an enemy. So like if something, you know, if something declines as an enemy, something else rises. Uh, so the war on terror, like, you know, this, they didn't talk much about China, you know, during most of the war on terror because they were just focused on these Middle East wars. The Middle East wars, I mean, that sort of ran its course. Everyone got sick of them, you know, sometime during the Obama administration after the Arab Spring. That was sort of like the last hurrah, you know, the Syrian rebels and the, uh, uh, the the bombing of Libya, um, and then so like you know it, it didn't be nobody like nobody wanted to hear that like nobody especially conservative um you know Democrats either but nobody wanted to hear about like a land war in the Middle East a war with Iran even though some people uh, you know on the Republican side still still wanted that they wanted that in the Trump administration um, and so like what else was there okay like Russia. I think it was like, you know, because the Democrats were so anti-Russia, the Republicans maybe were not so, as, as anti-Russia as they might be, but it was still there. People like Ted Cruz still hated Russia uh, before the Ukrainian invasion. But basically, China had to fill that role, right? It just it was just sort of minding its own business. It was growing economically. Um, it became strong, and then it became like, oh, my God, like there's this big, you know, giant thing that's going to, you know, that has, by some measures, the biggest economy in the world now. And like... You know, I don't know, like, what China could do to, like, not seem aggressive in international affairs. I mean, besides that, look, the Taiwan issue is something that's uh, China doesn't consider it a foreign issue. I mean, they consider it part of China. We basically, um, you know, we basically uh, said we have a one China policy. We don't have an official relation with Taiwan. So we love Taiwan so much. Um, why don't we like have an embassy in Taiwan and, you know, uh, like, you know, recognize them as a country? We don't like, you know, that when when Carter uh, when Carter um, uh, when Nixon and then Carter uh, opened up to China, the understanding was that China would eventually absorb Taiwan and it wouldn't matter to the United States. And like we were willing to live with that. Right. Uh, so the China thing is itself interesting because there's just a need in our politics. Uh, for for an enemy, and that's put on the back burner a little bit now that you know Russia is is uh, uniting everyone. But you know, if, if Russia, if if this Russia thing ever ends, probably won't. I mean, they hate they'll hate Russia forever. Um, but you know, China will just China will just rise. Like it, it's like China. Like people are not talking about China actually that much. But it's like it's like a it's like a seesaw. Like one goes down, the other has to be threat inflated. That's you know that's just how it works. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I just think it's a clear tactic that's being employed by Republicans who are observing this small but potentially growing segment of the party that is skeptical toward intervention in Ukraine by claiming that it's, again, intrinsically tied to China because they can more easily, I guess, now demonize China by just calling it the Chinese Communist Party and you know blaming china <laughs> for everything um you know you say that obviously there is this official policy of strategic uh, ambiguity as it's called vis-a-vis taiwan and, and china but on the other hand you know the u.s is ramping up yeah uh weaponry shipments to taiwan and you know almost micromanaging what weapon systems they acquire i mean i was reading something uh, recently about how there are factions of the Chinese or the Taiwanese security establishment that are sort of annoyed with 
the U.S. because certain weapon systems are not being authorized for shipment. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're in a phase where, I mean, I don't know how much longer the strategic ambiguity conceit can be maintained if we're arming Taiwan for the express purpose of supposedly fortifying their defense against a potential invasion from China. Yeah. I think I think you're right, and it's gonna if there ever if Taiwan ever blows up, it's gonna be like it's gonna be like the Russia thing, you know, the Russia and Ukraine thing. Um, people were saying, why did Putin do this now? You know, there was no no reason, like there was nothing happening on NATO. And you know, when people say that, you know that they haven't been paying that close attention. People like us who pay close attention, we know that a lot's been happening in the last few years. The U.S. Uh, building up the uh, the alliance with um, Ukraine. It's like that with China. I mean, people are not paying attention at all what's going on with uh, Taiwan. If one day it blows up and there's a war, um, we'll be just as we'll be just as crazy. Uh, you know, I think we won't be just as crazy. I think that the fact that uh, Ukraine is in Europe and I think it's white people, white villains, and white victims. I think that's like you know, it's not gonna. It'll never be like Ukraine. You know, it'll be like a sixty, a fifty percent uh, Ukraine thing. But people will be surprised. People who, pay, who's, you know, don't pay attention as closely as enough as us, but like pay attention enough to know that like something blew up in East Asia. Uh, those people are going to say it came out of nowhere, and it's just Chinese aggression. And you're right; I mean, you have to pay attention to what's going on now to sort of know the context if and when it does happen. Yeah. All right, let's go to some uh, callers here. Uh, Andrew. Oh no, Richard, you've got to select the callers because you technically started. Okay, the Andrew. Uh, let me see. Take next. Okay, I'll push that. All right. Hello. Everybody agree? Yeah. Yes, we, we hear you. Great. Okay, so I just want to make the point that I'm very strongly uh, of the opinion that Bernie Sanders is not an anti-imperialist. I've seen a lot of his uh, supporters um, basically comment that this is a good to vote because uh, it's an anti-imperialist vote. It's stopping Russia from being an imperialist. And so, you know, Bernie's actually right on, not only is he right on this, but it's, it is anti-imperialist. And I'm sorry, I've had experience not only following Bernie, I was uh, heavily involved in the student organization at my university and like uh, running, I was helping run it for the uh, Bernie Sanders, not officially affiliated with the campaign, but this student organization. And we had tons of students and I knew the people that were involved with the campaign in 2016 at that grassroots level. And even then a, a large portion of them really didn't care about foreign policy. They were very focused on domestic issues. And in the 2016 campaign, Bernie was running as more of like a Teddy Roosevelt figure where he was running around saying, uh, break up the big banks. We need health care as a right. There were there was a, a myriad of so-called revolutionary positions that he held. And most almost all of them were domestic issues. And when it comes to like the Iraq war, he just there's no way a Democrat like him or he's not a Democrat, but a progressive like him could support Bush's war, even though he did vote to fund it. So it's just the the Bush's war. But when it comes to Obama's wars, he never got in the way. And when it came to Syria and the Pentagon and the fund, uh, CIA funding two different factions that are killing each other with taxpayer money in Syria and spending hundreds of millions of dollars to train 14 people while Americans don't have health care, which supposedly Bernie Sanders cares about. He didn't have anything to say about that. He didn't have any objections in, in his uh, capacity as an elected re representative. And when it comes to NATO, so this is the past. And again, those people didn't care. The people that I was working with, it was a small sliver of people. 
that even cared or knew about these things. Frankly, most people just didn't even know about it because of how hard it is to even learn about some of this stuff. And so you look at the, that's the past. You look towards more of the present and Bernie Sanders supports NATO. He's, he's a supporter of NATO. There's no way you can deny that. No one can deny that. You wouldn't deny that. And that's imperialist. If, if, if imperialism and anti-imperialism mean anything, how can you support NATO? And wouldn't anti-imperialism, if that means supporting NATO, mean then you support when China invades Taiwan? If they do so, then we have to go to war on behalf of the sovereignty of the democracy of Taiwan. How is it any different than the so-called sovereign democracy of Ukraine? It's the exact same thing. And if that's what anti-imperialism leads to, then that's I, I, what use is the term? Because it's just complete uh, adherence to the U.S. national foreign policy and the hegemon, and, and which is about hegemony, which you don't get in the way of as a politician. So Bernie knows that and he's always tried a careful line and he's not an anti-imperialist or the term means nothing, in my opinion. And in the future, it's going to be proven right. It, I, I believe that if China moves on Taiwan, you'll see. Bernie and the squad and AOC, who just gets her orders from Pelosi and basically has the same instincts, which she thinks she can get away with this because her supporters don't care. Yeah, I, mean, I, I get that argument a lot. And I think most of the time it's from people who actually don't consider themselves to be anti-imperialist. I don't actually use that term myself, at least to describe my own views, because I think it's not particularly, uh, you know, illuminating as to what it even necessarily means. But yeah, they'll make the argument that actually the true anti-imperialist thing right now is to support the U.S. war effort, to support however billion dollars, many billion dollars are requested to fund the provision of weaponry and to use ever more sophisticated you know, intelligence sharing methods to facilitate combat operations in Ukraine. You know, the whole litany of actions that the U.S. is taking in the war – um, that's anti-imperialist because Russia is the imperial power here and uh, beating them back is what every true anti-imperialist should, should do. I mean it's funny because like, that, that would come as news to, for example, Jeremy Corbyn who um, I think actually you know, does proudly identify as an anti-imperialist and has been consistent about that through his entire career and he has the opposite view on this issue. Um, and it's funny because – okay, so actually Bernie – when he did go against the grain on something of significance, when he, he first got into the House in uh, 1991. He voted against the Gulf War. Um, and, you know, what was the impetus for the Gulf War, at least nominally? It was that, you know, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. I mean, was Saddam Hussein the imperial power there? I mean, arguably, but apparently that, that uh, rationale wasn't persuasive enough for Bernie to cast a so-called anti-imperialist vote in that context by, you know, approving the war. Um, because, you know, it's sort of a ridiculous justification. It's so uh, contingent that it really makes no sense when you um, extrapolate it out into some kind of universal principle. May I ask who's the anti-imperialist power in Somalia right now? I mean, is it also anti-imperialist that <laughs> Bernie Sanders is being completely quiet and letting his good friend Joe Biden get away with reversing what Trump actually got right? Yeah, I don't think, yeah, there's probably some warlord. Uh, that is scaring the American intelligence community. But no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, uh, that perspective. Because um, yeah, I think I think we've talked enough about Bernie Sanders. I think we know that he's not an anti-imperialist or anti-war figure. I mean, I don't think that's up to much debate. So it's it's good to know, good to remember. Uh, next person is uh, Jamil. Uh, unmuted and go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have 
two very specific hypothetical questions. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask both of them right in a row, um, because I'm hoping that you might think even one of them is worthy of a response and uh, wouldn't blame you if you don't. Is that all right? Go ahead. All right. So my first hypothetical is if the Russian military is even weaker than um, we than seems possible, and tonight Vladimir Putin just had to admit it and met with two advisors. One of them was Jesus Christ himself, and he suggested the best plan Jesus uh the most moral plan that was possible and said just withdraw entirely from the ukraine mm -hmm. um leave their territory entirely mm -hmm. as long as you can as Zelensky signs a 50-year lease for the uh, sevastopol um black sea or excuse me for the odessa navy base at market rates at above market rates that's the one thing they got to agree to. And his other advisor is Smeagol. And he says, you have to drop a nuke on your way out or they will follow you. Come up with one plan where you nuke a city now and there's lots of casualties immediately, and another where you nuke farmland and there's low casualties immediately, but a famine later. Then call Zelensky and tell him he has to pick one or you'll do both. My question is, the sanctions the U.S. has imposed on Russia are exactly the same either way, right? If Biden tried to say, um, we will use sanctions as an incentive for you to choose the plan that doesn't involve nuclear weapons, would that be a violation of U.S. law. The second hypothetical is... No, it wouldn't be a violation. I mean, the, the, they can use sanctions how they want, so they, the president has a lot of discretion here. So it would not be a violation of U.S. law. All right. Um, then I'll rephrase that, too. Is that something that anyone ha has anyone in the U.S. government proposed using sanctions as a threat to actually try and get Russia to do anything specific. And uh, the second hypothetical, which is a little bit shorter, if Vladimir Putin decided to go with the Jesus plan because uh, Smeagol wasn't wearing a mask, and uh, the Ukrainian military called us a couple of weeks later and said, please deliver $2 billion of the uh, military aid to people we've... Uh, struck a business deal with, um, half to Rudy Giuliani and half to Hunter Biden, would our suppliers be obligated to deliver those, to deliver the aid directly to uh, those people? Okay, thank you. Um, you know, I got some of that. I think the, um, uh, I think that, uh, um, you, uh, you know, the, the sanctions thing, yes, I've written about sanctions. I have a Newsweek article um, on sanctions. You know, they generally don't work. I mean, they're unlikely to work in uh, uh, in this case in, in particular. I mean, the, um, 
you know, basically because when countries, you know, countries are going to prioritize their own, um, you know, their national security concerns and stuff that they find vital over the, uh, over the, um, over the economics, you know, there's nothing to force them to care about, you know, the GDP of their country. Now in Russia's case, it's very interesting. I'm not an expert in the economics, uh, of this, but it's basically the economic pain has not been nearly as bad as we were promised. Um, the Russian uh, GDP is actually, you know, uh, Grew by one or two percent um, uh, in the, uh, I think it was the first quarter that was just announced. People weren't expecting that. I think they were expecting a drop. Um, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. And the the estimates for Ukraine are just you know disastrous. Um, and so it's um, it's uh, uh, it's not um, you know it's a uh, it, it, the, the the economic aspect of this doesn't seem to be working. Now in the long run, I think that what people say is maybe it will um maybe it will make you know like at some point like the high-tech equipment or whatever we're like it'll run out of russia will run out of cruise missiles and like you know it won't be able to supply itself the military stuff i don't know if that's true i think the uh i think the most countries most big countries are pretty you know especially ones like russia are self-sufficient in the uh, a lot of the military stuff maybe not the high the most high-tech stuff they need but you know the uh uh, you know the tanks and the artillery. I think they'll be continuing uh, to able. They'll be uh, they'll they'll have a steady. They'll have be, they'll be able to continue to make that or at least buy it from somewhere. Um, so yeah, that's that's the like optimistic scenario for for people who like sanctions for it working. Um, and yeah, it's, I don't think there's much good evidence for that now. Uh, yeah, I didn't quite follow the uh, hypothetical scenario that was laid out there, so I apologize. Um, just a quick note on Bernie Sanders. I know you said that we've exhausted the subject, but there was something <laughs> else that I just remembered that I wanted to know because I actually think it is pretty telling. Uh, one of the more, more, more uh, sort of striking votes that Bernie Sanders has taken is that in 2012, he voted no on the Magnitsky Act, which if you're not yeah. familiar with it, is this um, was this sanctions power that was given to the president in 2012 based on the lobbying efforts of this guy Bill Browder, who had you know was one of these um, hedge fund profiteers who entered Russia after it uh, you know liberalized its econ- economically and basically Bill Browder was just extracting all the assets he possibly could out of Russia in this feeding frenzy post the dissolution of the Soviet Union and, you know, he spun this whole tale of how his tax lawyer was murdered by Putin and, um, you know, if he, the, reporting has subsequently come out poking tons of holes in the story that he's told. And you know, there's a, there was a big article a couple of years ago in Der Spiegel uh, basically casting down on the whole premise of this uh, tale. But anyway, Browder was successful in lobbying Congress to uh, pass this New, so Browder, uh, sanctions power. So Browder is a fraud. I, I've heard people say that, but you're saying there's a good Deer Spiegel article on this. Yeah, there's a good Deer Spiegel article on it. Um, there's a documentary that's pretty good on it um, about you know basically how the the way that Browder characterized this lawyer um, uh-huh. uh, was that he was a whistleblower and he had uncovered that the Russian police had stolen public money. And that as retribution, his lawyer was arrested on false charges and basically killed in prison. Um, And really what was happening was that apparently uh, Browder himself was being criminally investigated. 
and so that so uh, for for non-payment of taxes and his uh lawyer was basically just his accountant and who had been you know investigated pursuant to this um you know probe into into browder um I'm not saying he's a fraud in uh, every respect, but at the very least, there are some gaping holes in the narrative that was pushed to get this law passed, and which like still forms the basis today of why Browder is sought after as a pundit on, you know, everything related to Russia. Uh, but anyway, uh, Bernie Sanders voted against the Magnitsky Act in 2012. He was only one of four senators to do so, um, and actually, Browder had intermittently criticized him for it even during the two presidential campaigns in 2016 and 2020 over that vote. And it's just impossible to imagine Bernie Sanders being anywhere close to willing to stake out a position that could get him now maligned as somehow soft on Russia. Um, so, so I mean, although, you know, yeah, I think we've established he's not some kind of consistent anti-imperialist, he has taken relatively you know, unpopular votes at times. Uh, but now that's kind of just been washed away after this whole process of him, again, ingratiating himself more into the main frame of the Democratic Party and, you know, getting swept up in the anti-Russia furor uh, over the past uh, number of years. So anyway, that's just my uh, little addendum on Bernie. Yeah, Russia, I mean, the view of Russia and the Democratic Party certainly shifted. It's It's really, it's hard not to be very anti-Russia, I think, for the 2016, for the 20, uh, they blame, they basically blame Putin for Trump, and then, you know, that's just, Putin became, you know, their, their bait noir, I mean, it's not, it's not the Obama era anymore, where you can have a little bit of a different opinion. Uh, so, Sal, you want to go right ahead? Yeah, so, coming back to the question of uh, geopolitics, uh, right now, the Blinken-Biden uh, administration, they're basically trying to push India and they're trying to browbeat them into joining a camp. And more than 80% of the world has decided not to be on that side. Uh, India ha- suffered more than two centuries of humiliation to, quote, Jai Shankar, their foreign policy uh, uh, um, expert. Uh, the head of their foreign policy, he's like, China had one century of humiliation, India had more than two centuries of humiliation. Uh, is there a chance, in your both opinions, of India joining the camp of Russia plus China plus now India? Um, I am not an expert in India, so I, I, I don't know about India's internal politics. I know, I think I've, you know, I've seen the public opinion in India is sort of, you know, likes this neutrality. Uh, their government has not been, you know, on board as much as, um, uh, the West would like. Um, but as far as India going more aggressively in the sort of non-aligned or, you know, Western skeptical, uh, uh, direction, uh, I, you know, I wouldn't have much insight into that. What, what do you think, Mike? Well, I saw Michael on Arnab Goswami's uh, shows. Well, he just disappeared right now, but uh. I saw him on <laughs> some of his shows and uh, wondered his thoughts on that as well, because it seems like they're trying to like push India into the camp of Russia plus China. Okay, yeah. So uh, we'll go back to we'll go back to Mike. I mean, if if he gets back in, he might have just lost his uh, connection. Uh, okay. Uh, I guess we'll keep going. We'll probably, Michael probably come right back. Uh, Phil, you want to go right ahead? 
Uh, sure. Do you got me? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, a couple of interesting things. Just a little cleanup thing. Uh, uh, I think Michael had said he wasn't sure if there'd been prisoner swaps, but there, uh, there have been. Hey, yeah, so, right. sorry, sorry about that. I, uh, I mistakenly yeah. uh, <laughs> pl- oh, Mike, press the button uh, to leave the room. Yeah. Let me ha- let me uh, Phil. Let me ask him to. Um, let me ask him to respond to the last. Yeah, on, uh, the I heard I heard the India related question. You know, again, I'm not an expert on India either. It's one of these countries that is just so um, overwhelming to even begin to be able to apprehend with any uh, intelligence. Uh, but you know, I will say that my th- thought on the position of India throughout all this is that its um, refusal to abide these U.S. injunctions to um, more, you know, vociferously denounce Russia um, and even bucking the U.S. outright by uh, forging new deals for oil importation with Russia since the war began. Um, That seemed to me to be one of the clearest indications, if not the clearest, of the waning of U.S. just hegemony, because the U. The, uh, you know China was basically assumed would, you know, not uh, you know go out of its way to not be aligned with the U.S. on the issue of Russia, and in fact you know forge closer ties with Russia. But I think a lot of people were surprised by the this neutrality of of India, in part because you know the U.S. has very. Um, intently cultivated uh, ties with with India over the years, including uh, military ties. I mean, Lloyd Austin in 2021 went to India, met with the Indian, um, you know, defense minister or whatever the equivalent position is, and announced like a new phase in this, just, uh, you know, military partnership between the U.S. and India. And, you know, a lot of people thought that because uh, Modi was more, you know, of a neoliberal bent or whatever, and that he was going to be pro-America, at least in terms of uh, marketization and such of the Indian economy. Um, But, you know, none of that has resulted in them uh, aligning with the U.S. in terms of foreign policy priorities, which, you know, I got to think, and of course it's a counterfactual, but I got to think if the U.S. maintained the same kind of unbreakable hegemony as it has in the past, that it could probably browbeat India into joining with its position. But now it's because it's it's weakened, um, it can't. So, I mean, I'm not going to try to uh, weigh in on much in the way of the nuances of like the domestic political situation in India. But in terms of that kind of geopolitical um, pivot point, I do think India is probably the most vivid illustration of this, you know, sort of depreciation and just American overall um, hegemonic influence. I don't know if you agree with that, Richard. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, India is. I mean, it's just such an important country in its own right. So, like, whether it is, um, you know, slightly tilted towards the West or not so tilted towards the West is going to matter a lot. I mean, it's still a poor country, but you assume that it's going to, you know, it's got a billion people. Its, it's population is actually growing. I think it has it passed China, or it will pass China uh, in population. Um, yeah, it's very close. Yeah, and it's not as um, it's not as uh, hasn't grown as fast as China. I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, the, Ch- the Chinese just have had sort of more m- miraculous growth. But nonetheless, I mean, it has grown uh, fast. Um, and so it's an, you know, it's an important thing to watch. I think that, um, 
the odds of it going aggressively in one direction or another, just from me watching. I mean, non-alignment seems to be its history. I mean, the, a lot of countries, a lot of non-Western uh, places are really looking inward. I think they never, I think, you know, I think just the cultural distance and the racial distance and all that. I mean, I think that there's, you know, there's a tendency for them to want to do their own thing, have their own civilization. Um, and I'd be surprised if they tilted either in the pro-Western direction or the anti-Western direction. But um, who knows? Again, I know little about India. Hey, anyway, uh, Phil is the guy who I spoke to last night who uh, had the experience <laughs> in the Gary, Indiana uh, gas station. So maybe he maybe he can uh, rehash that for people. Well, what we were discussing was this extra, this phenomena that I haven't seen in my 71 years, which is this, uh, you know, almost Stepford wife like commitment to Ukraine, a place that people know nothing about. Uh, um, and uh, it's just extraordinary. But I, I mean, I think it was it was late March. It was I think they invaded what the twenty fourth, something like that. So it was a matter of days, less than a week. Uh, uh, February twenty fourth of February. Yeah, uh, February. Sorry. And uh, uh, I stopped at a gas station, and you know the lady had my receipt, and as she was checking me out, uh, she asked me something, and I didn't quite catch. It. I said, "Excuse me." And she said, would you like to contribute to Ukraine? You know, and there was a place on the thing. Of course, I said, no. <laughs> it was just astonishing that somehow, in a matter of days, this corporate, uh, uh, you know, push had started already. Uh, and uh, at least it was very early. But, Mike, I, you know, I, I kind of just had some other thoughts on that. I don't know if you... Uh, you guys remember this, but uh, uh, very early on, it was in the first few, again, very early in the, uh, after the invasion, there was a, uh, a young reporter, newsreader, I think, or, or whatever. I can't remember the station or whatever it was, but she made the mistake of saying, oh, it's terrible what's happening. And look what's going on over there. And they look, she said something like, they, they look like us. To which everyone, you know, I, I think that the crit criticism that came forward was on, like on a racial level, you know, it, it said, is this a racist reaction? Because normally it's brown people that are getting invaded and so on. Uh, but as it, it came to think about it, uh, I realized that, you know, that would be a, a cheap shot at her, but she's correct. The people that she was seeing uh, did look like news people. They look like Democratic Party uh, elites <laughs> uh, because when we look at, we're looking at uh, almost a very narrow sector of a country that's not reflected by the people who live in Lviv, uh, which is a university town, uh, more Polish than anything else, uh, or Kiev, or, uh, uh, and, and that's pretty much what we see. The people that have left and have gone over the border very often are people of mean. I mean, I don't think people realize that Ukraine has a 45, had pre-war, a 45% unemployment rate. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's, a, it's a catastrophe of a country. It has the highest HIV rate outside of the third world. Uh, you know, there, I mean, there are innumerable stories over the years of, you know, kind of uh, the things that happen to places that are, what Cuba was to us in 1959. You know, it's, you, you've got all these, you know, money makers over there playing around with uh, oligarchs. It's notoriously corrupt. Uh, 
if you if Ukraine was you know jumped Poland and was somewhere in Europe, our general reaction to it would be, you know, it would be below Hungary on the scale of people that we like. <laughs> it's just a, you know astonishing. So so it happens to be there anyway. It's just. Uh, and that, I think, is all part of this kind of, uh, you know, messaging that, uh, that I've, I've got to admit has been extraordinarily, <laughs> extraordinarily effective to the degree that when you asked about, uh, we didn't know if there had been prisoner exchanges. We don't because none of that is reported. They're not going to tell you that Russia has probably somewhere between six and 10,000 prisoners of war right now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they, they just they just got two thousand out of this place, two thousand plus. I mean, some of them are going to you know accommodate the denazification. They're going to get sent to Russia. Some of them might get traded and everything. But uh, uh, but we're just not getting that information. Uh, it's just not being uh, r- reported. Uh, well, the um, first of all, the uh, unemployment statistic that you cited. Would have been shocking to me if if it were true. Maybe you have different data than I do. But I just pulled up the World Bank and it says uh, 2021 Ukraine unemployment rate nine uh, percent. Uh, but you know, I th- yeah. uh, but, but but you know, so I don't know. Maybe that's that's not right. But whatever. Um, you know, I take your point though in that if Ukraine were just sort of analyzed in a vacuum, right? Um, and I I don't purport to be an expert on Ukraine. But if it were just sort of analyzed in a vacuum as to its sort of uh, the hosp- its hospitality, 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 hospitality. <laughs> I can't pronounce the word. Sorry. As to its sort of like um, affinity for the U.S., you know, there'd be a lot not to particularly like about it. And this is this is why the issue of not quote unquote Nazis or neo Nazis in Ukraine was so heavily emphasized for such a long time in U.S. media. Uh, even by people who would otherwise be very antagonistic toward Russia. I mean, even this outfit, Bellingcat, which is essentially just this intelligence <laughs> operation. Spook. Even yeah. they, yeah, it's like a spook outfit. Even they would occasionally kind of, maybe it's to cover their bases or maybe they were genuinely alarmed by it. But nonetheless, they did produce occasional reports over the past couple of years on the prevalence of this Nazi element within Ukraine and actually um, – sought to refute insistences on the part of different kind of actors within Ukraine that this Nazi issue is being overstated maliciously by enemies of Ukraine. Um, uh, so, like, uh, you know, back, back when it was still a thing to not just be totally mindlessly in favor of everything possibly to do with Ukraine, you know, you even had, and this is why I, I did that Substack. I don't know, Richard, if you read it um, from a couple of days ago on this issue of Nazis in Ukraine and like the way it's being covered. Um, this is why even these American advocacy organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, like the uh, Anti-Defamation League, would go out of their way to point out the danger, as they saw it, of this rising Nazi uh, sentiment within Ukraine, not just within the populace, but in the official um, structures of governance, including the military, which, of course, integrated this regiment, Azov, into its uh, command structure. Um, So, yeah, I I think uh, the larger point is probably right, that the PR initiative has been massively successful to make everybody so emotionally invested in Ukraine, a lot of it's been done through social media. I mean, if you, there was a good piece actually in Mint Press News, which maybe some people think of as a sort of fringe 
website, and you know, I don't, I, I, it's not definitely not mainstream, but they did have a very good article in I want to say March, where uh, they found like this open source Google Doc on uh, PR tactics that people in Ukraine were posting about in order to make Ukraine much more uh, sympathetic and to therefore you know, generate potential you know, U.S. or NATO military intervention, deployment of weaponry and whatever else. And uh, it's been enormously successful. I mean, you have, to, you have to admit that they're very savvy about it. Um, you know, I think also it's just an, it's an anti-Russia reaction. So, you know, given the prominence of Russia in the American political psyche as of late, particularly among liberals, um, it's easy to just cast whoever they're marshaled against as the inherently more sympathetic um, player. And, you know, it also is true, we should say, or I should say that, you know, Russia did choose to launch an aggressive um, invasion. And so, you know, there's something just intuitive about uh, coming to the defense to some degree of the target of that invasion, you know, sure. notwithstanding other, other aspects of the situation. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I think you're, you're right, which is why I've – it's amazing to me because you've seen almost nothing in the popular media uh, that covers with any degree of skepticism or adversarial sort of attitude about, uh, about this PR initiative. Um, <laughs> you know, it was like pulling teeth for me to get the, the two most prominent, I would say, uh, you know, anti-hate advocacy organizations, the SPLC and the ADL, to comment on the fact that there are these pro-Nazi, I mean, uh, pro-neo-Nazi rallies that are uh, breaking out in the streets of the U.S. I mean, there was just another pro-Azov rally in uh, New York City this past weekend. Um, and they won't say anything about it. So it's <laughs> that, that, that whole um, discursive... Well, you would have thought the, the irony of a uh, swastika-wearing woman meeting with the Pope would have been an interesting side story somewhere. But it yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw those photos being posted as well. I mean, I couldn't <laughs> tell for sure if it was the same woman because, you know, some people look alike. But, you know, even leaving that aside, I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It's still, there were still the, the, the quote, so-called wives of Azov who were being <laughs> feted around Europe on this PR tour given, you know, uh, puff pieces in like the Telegraph and yeah, meeting with the Pope to, to lobby for the interests of the Azov Battalion. It's just amazing. Astonishing. Astonishing. Yeah. Uh, you know, let me correct something. Did I say unemployment rate or poverty rate? I thought, oh, I think you said I, unemployment. I, I think I might have made a mistake and said unemployment. I think it's the European poverty rate. Uh, Ukraine is unquestionable. Okay, yeah. it's, uh, I just yeah. looked up their AIDS, uh, their AIDS rate on 1%. That's amazing. That's amazing for a non African. Uh, uh, right. Country. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I mean, in the, in the uh, sexual uh, trafficking and exploitation of uh, women. I mean, all you have to do is go on YouTube, look up Ukrainian women or some, or some of these bizarre sites. I mean, you've got people that are just, it, it's what happens in countries that are, uh, you know, in, the, in this kind of uh, sad state. Uh, I mean, you've got, you know, a significant proportion of the population wanted to become part of the EU so they could leave, you know. And, and find employment. I mean, so it was, it was in bad shape, and it's, it's certainly in worse, worse shape now. Yeah. But but the, the, the on top of that, you know, what that's allowed. I think you were talking about that at the beginning. Was that uh, you know you have effectively 
something again that I haven't seen in years and years, which is almost no political uh, uh, opposition, which is which is strange because I mean I think you could you could have an imperialist opposition yeah. to this war. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's not like Mearsheimer or a lot of the realists are uh, you know uh, uh, Putin fanboys or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, <laughs> Phil, let, Phil, let me uh, let me yeah, introduce, sure. interrupt you if I could, uh, Mike. I'm, I need we need to go at the top of the hour. Do you want to take one more um, one more caller? Yeah, yeah. Let's go one more. Thank Apologies you. to uh, people who uh, yeah. might be missing out. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Okay, this will be our last guy, uh, Ledford. Go ahead. Sorry for people we didn't get to. Oh, uh, hi. You hear me? Yep. Yep. I had a question for uh, Michael. Uh, you may have answered earlier. I came in later. In Europe, and I guess you were especially in Poland, did you notice any uh, a concern or fear or how much concern or fear about uh, nuclear war or the Russians using tactical nuclear weapons or escalation uh, towards that? Something that was very big during the Cold War, but people seem to quickly dismiss that possibility or far too quickly for my taste. What did you hear in Europe? Uh, you know, to the extent that I heard anxieties expressed to me about the, about the potential for escalation, it really wasn't specifically about nuclear war. It was this almost like quasi-domino theory that's now being promulgated you know, and actually, you know, we were talking about Taiwan earlier. It is sort of a, a new iteration of the domino theory that, you know, somehow if Ukraine falls, then the next domino is going to be Taiwan or something to that effect. Uh, but, you know, particularly in Poland, um, and um, I know this is also the case in like the Baltic states, um, there is a fairly ingrained belief, you know, across the political spectrum, really, that um, that's... Poland is itself at risk for some kind of invasion or incursion or just to be subjugated by Russia if they're not defeated in, Ukra in Ukraine. And actually, you see this sort of logic now replicated amongst U.S. politicians when they discuss it. Um, so, you know, I, I, when I would kind of like naturally sort of um, press people to just articulate what it is that they were concerned about in terms of the wider ramifications of the war. It was just kind of generic uh, anxiety as to how Poland could potentially be next. Um, and it really wasn't so much about nuclear war per se. And again, this is anecdotal, so maybe I have an incomplete picture of what people are thinking. Um, but my impression is that the people who are bringing up the risk of nuclear war uh, tend to be those who are cautioning against wider escalation. I mean, the, 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 this whole anxiety in Poland, as far as I could tell, in terms of Poland being next on the you know, list of targets, was in service of advocating for more intervention, namely that the U.S. ought to be more vigorously involved in defeating Russia and Ukraine to pr protect Poland. Um, so, yeah, that's my, my sense. Oh, okay. like, yeah, I, uh, I know that the Soviets, uh, Soviet doctrine, which came out after the Cold War, was in a mass offensive, which Ukraine does not seem to have been, according to that doctrine, was to start with technical nuclear weapons. Uh, and so they have that doctrine, and of course, 
the bombs if they want to use them. And fortunately, it doesn't look like they would do that. Then again, I didn't think they were going to invade until two days before they did. So that, that's what I worry about, the uncertainty regarding that. And I wish that uh, people in Europe and obviously in Washington would worry about that more. Yeah, you know, Lindsey Graham said if Russia does use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, that should be regarded as an attack on NATO and then uh, result in the invocation of Article 5 just because of, you know, the radiation, you know, wafting into uh, NATO states. So, yeah, I mean, I... There's going to be a lot of wafting with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If that happens, but uh, anyway. All right, well, uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in again. Thanks, Richard. And uh, we're going to continue doing this weekly. Uh, I think this is right now going to be our standard time, so that's 8 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you then. Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye.